You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos, and you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. This week, Father Paul reiterates that Scripture calls all the nations to live in their cities as though they were sheep in the wilderness. I am happy to introduce Father Paul on the Bible as Literature podcast, Tarazi Tuesdays. Verse 14, But I will bring judgment on the nation which they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Okay? So in preparation for the exodus, they will come out with great possessions as Abram did earlier in chapter 12. So already now we have the projection of the cycle of Abram on the story of Jacob slash Israel. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. Meaning that you will not see the realization of the promise. Hence the importance of the trust in verse 6. Abram is not going to see any of this. But he has to trust in the word of the Lord. And this is what Paul underscores in his famous Romans chapter 4. It's so important, this chapter, that is usually missed between 3 and 5, you know. But one has to really hear it time and again about the faith of Abraham. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. And notice the key. Passage at the end of 16, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That is so key later in the story of the entrance in the earth of the promise, where time and again we are told that Israel was not granted the land because of its inherent righteousness or chosenness, or whatever. No, it is because the nations that are living there committed iniquity and sinned. And you heard me so often saying, who would want to enter a land as a gift to you when God is telling you, look what I did with the people who were there when they disobeyed me. Personally, I would not take the deal But in the Bible, you have no choice. God forced the exodus on Israel and forced the trek in the wilderness and forced to Joshua the entrance to the land. The iniquity, Awon, it's a very interesting word because its best translation is burden or onus. It's like when you do something bad and you keep thinking about it at the same time. So the word burden onus in English is very good. And the Amorites will meet again 
in Amos chapter 2, where precisely we are told that they were brought into the land of the Amorites. Amorites, if you like, is the name that encompasses the entirety of the nations in the Syrian wilderness. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed Abar between these pieces which Abraham had cut in two. Now again here, later, I'm jumping to explain to the hearers, but they will have to wait when they will realize that God will be marching through them as a smoke and as fire in the wilderness. And the verb abar, to cross the sea of reeds and so on, is already there. Okay? Again, it's the hearing. The hearing. We have tried to remember. That's why the best way is to memorize the Bible. But if you can't, try to remember keywords. Like Abar is a keyword to remember. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Very interesting. Notice the connection with the Exodus and the covenant of the Exodus. And here we have a covenant with Abram. To your Progeny, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. That's why earlier we heard of Damascus. It's way up there, meaning again that the promised land is the Syrian wilderness and the seal for my statement is that suddenly for the first time we have mention of Ten nations, the totality of the nations. We can go in detail over each of them. Kenites is the descendant of Cain. Kenizzites, Kenaz, later he'll be connected with Caleb. Kadmonites is those who are from the Eats. The Hittites are definitely a historical people, very important. This is the main name that appears at the entrance of the land under Joshua. Perizzites, I said it several times, that it's the spreading, the, this is the word that was used together with Canaanites earlier. Rephaim is the big guys, you know. And then we have the Amorites, very important. The Canaanites, we know about that. The Girgashites, as I explained elsewhere, that it's a combination from Garash to be spread or put aside thrown and gear also, and then the Jebusites in preparation of the city of David, Jerusalem, and so on. But even if these details are overwhelming, the important thing is that we have the mention of the covenant and with the land of all those nations. And ultimately, this will be realized when Israel, who thought of itself that it was special, was scattered by God among the nations, so that when the blessing of God will come 
on the remnant of Israel, it will include all the nations as we shall see later. So it's really an important chapter. And again, even more than chapter 14, which we discussed last year, it not only asks, but demands patience. For the first time, you have just to hear it and leave your questions in the back burner of your mind. Don't even ask them, although I'm sure Father Mark and Richard are going to ask me a couple of questions. <laughs> but the best thing would be to keep them on our back burner so that we, the hearers, would be convinced. You have to be convinced. We should not impose Scripture on others. Scripture is to be offered, never imposed. Anyway, I mean, from this perspective, it's really an extremely important chapter. So, Father Paul, one of the things that I really appreciate in reading so slowly through this text and listening to the text is these details. And the thing that I've noticed is the Amorites of all the people are the ones who keep popping up that Abram in the last chapter settled among the Amorites, and it's the sin of the Amorites that we're waiting to be fulfilled. And I think shalem is an interesting verb to express that. And then they're listed among these nations. Can you help me understand a little bit more what is the significance about the Amorites over and against the other nations in this section that makes them significant? The Amorites, the Amuru, you see, like the Hittites, are historical. The other names, many of them are made up. But you have specifically historical names, which are key because let's go for, for instance, for the Amorite, the father, and the Hittite, the mother of Israel in Ezekiel. And Aramean, on the other hand, is my father was a wandering Aramean, Obed. So these three names are key. The Aramean is the area of the Syrian desert, and then the Amorites were also an ancient nation, big and powerful, plus the Hittites, although they were to the north, but they came to the south and so on. They were important people. So to hear the name Amorite, you have Two levels, if you like. First of all, it's a majestic name. And then people who were in that area. And yet, at one point, they disappeared, not disappeared individually, as a power from this area. And that is the message to the hearer. That you have the burden to be obedient to the law, as Paul will say in Romans, even if you're not aware of it. Because later, as we shall see, it's very funny that in the law, God is telling Israel, I'm giving you a law to abide by. And I'm going to send you to a land out of which 
I punished by throwing them away. The nations who did not abide by my will. Tis incredible. This is a literary way to teach you the importance of the law God is giving you. But to go by historicizing how come but they didn't know, uh, you know, historicizing and philosophizing, which I attack page after page in my book, it's the ultimate calamity. Because ultimately the message is for the hearers, the addressee. And this is where I criticize the Born again when they use the Bible to condemn the outsiders. The outsiders, Paul said it in 1 Corinthians, it's none of your business. I'm talking to you. And I'm telling you, here I have to take an aside, my classic example. I mean, if you are American, uh, it's harder to you, but I'm sure some will understand. This approach of a Middle Eastern, they would say, a mother who would tell her children, even if you ask your aunts and uncles, they will tell you the same thing. We say, well, let me try to call them. But you're fool, because even if they contradict your mother, the answer of your mother, at least in the Middle East, will be, well, they are saying this to you only to be nice to you, but I know exactly what they think. It's classic. So the reading, in, in a nutshell, would be, it is functional for the hearer. Amorites is a powerful word like Hittites, and yet they ripened, their onus was ripe, as you pointed out, complete in the Hebrew. And the use of the original, you pointed out that it is the verb shalem from which we have also the peace. Very interesting, that's a play. That is, ultimately, the peace comes from God, the totality, the settlement, the assurance, the insurance. It's a very versatile word. I mean, you have it in Arabic, Islam. Islam means to submit. But salam is from the same root. That's why you get your peace, by submitting to God, not by fighting for your peace. And that's why Zion is the judgment of Jerusalem. Anyway, I hope I answered, but I needed also to go into this aside, stressing the functionality in the ear of the addressee. It's striking, actually, that you have a city dweller from Ur, Abram, who came out, was brought out into the desert, essentially, to receive an inheritance with the Amorites. What's going on there? Because, ultimately... <laughs> You're going to be thrown among the nations. That's the idea. Notice, we're talking about the ciliar wilderness. That's why I keep saying it's not any wilderness. It's not Utah. No, it's that specific wilderness. And according to me, although the Syro-Arabian desert is included in Genesis chapter 2, 
But the concentration is on the Syrian desert because it is surrounded by rivers and sea and thus cities majestic. You don't have the same kind of richness of cities in the Arabian desert. You have it in the south a little bit and so on. But, you know, everything is around this Syrian desert, which is very special in that sense. Next door, you have the cities. And let us remember, the writers of scripture that zeroed in on the Syrian desert were not the Bedouins of the desert. The Bedouins do not have a civilization, pen and bricks and so on to write on. Come on, friends. So through Israel, the message is for all the nations to live in their cities as though they were sheep in the wilderness. And this is the function of the Ketubim, according to me, which I stress again and again, and which more often than not the theology is relegated as a tail end. No. Scripture, according to Sirach, is the Torah, the prophets that tell you the sin of Israel. But then the Ketubim, where Israel is the addressee, not the nations. The nations will become the addressees in the New Testament. But the Ketubim is a reminder to Israel that they have to share this message with the nations so that everybody ultimately will submit to the teaching and the will of God as we hear in Isaiah chapter 2. Chapter 2 of Isaiah is very interesting. It's right at the beginning of the book, of a long book, that tells you days are coming when not only Jacob, Israel, but also the nations will go up to the mount. That is the thing. So again, it's not as though how can I in a high rise in Minneapolis live? Yes, you can by being obedient to God by treating your next-door neighbor as another sheep in the flock of God. And when you are nice to him, don't tap yourself on the shoulder. Just do it, because this is what sheep do. That would be my answer, my conviction, and more than my conviction. I know that this is what the Bible is saying. It is we that we have to change and perceive the message functionally. Take the priests and the minister and say, my flock, my flock, my flock, my flock. Well, I do not trust someone coming from Northern Europe understanding what the word means, as simple as that. I just do not trust. That's how very early the church has this, for me, catastrophic phrase in the service of baptism and make this child one of your reasonable sheep. There is no reasonable sheep unless you convince me that the authors were pre-Tarazi and guessed that 
Logikos means a sheep that follows the teaching of the word of the gospel. If it is so, then that's fine, but don't translate it as reasonable. I have lots of pages in my commentaries on Paul trying to explain this. Take Romans 12, logiki latria. Reasonable service. What do you mean? By words? This means that ultimately you're going to speak, oh, great, our orthodox service and the prayers we came up with and the singing. You're talking about yourself. That's not what Paul is talking about. It's the worship that is anchored in the word. But that's the trouble, ultimately, even if I go on an aside now. The understanding of the Hebrew dabar, which is to manage. Sometimes you do it by the rod. You don't need words all the time to manage. That translated into logos, which is correct, but unfortunately theology perceived it as the platonic logos. And that is the trouble. Anyway, my friends... It's a rich text according to me, but again, you have to hear it in sequence and be patient. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.